studying this week reminded me, well, this week in general kind of reminded me of a story. Maybe, maybe, maybe a story you're familiar with as well. A man is accused of harming a young girl. Her advocates stir up the public with alarming accusations. As people hear these slanderous reports, a groundswell of opposition rises, demanding something should be done about this. Now, the leading politicians of the day, those who sit on elevated seats, and they're supposed to be the ones who have the responsibility to evaluate this man, they are pressured to cast aside the normal rules of evidence and procedure and to give in to the cries of the crowd without going through the normal process. What are they going to do? If the rule of law and the procedures of due process that this government has been founded on, those are thrown out the window, what will we have left? If this leaders cave to the populist riot on this point, who would be the next one to be accused unjustly and run out of town on a rail? What am I speaking about? It's not what you think. Or maybe it is. It's not something that happened this week or last. It's actually something that happened in Acts chapter 16. A grave injustice is, a, is going to be unfolded in this chapter to us. And many might wonder, where is God? Why is he allowing? God has, God has sent them there. God has brought them to this. This is the place that God told them to go to. And they all agreed in that together. It lines up with his word. They, they, they through the circumstances of steering this way and that way, they wound up in Philippi, and, and that's where they're supposed to be. And yet... When they get there, when they go, this is the response they get. This is how they're treated. Why isn't God protecting him, them? They have followed him. They have walked in his steps. They went where he said to go, and they've done what he said to do. And now, God seems to leave them to be mistreated and maligned. To be slandered and slammed, to be abused and accused. How... You can identify with that, can't you? Because I thought, I thought, somebody told me just recently that, um, actually somebody else in ministry in another church said to me that in our family, we've just recently, we've had to confront a lie that was being believed. And the lie was this, that if I do things right, if I do what I'm supposed to do, if I play by the rules, if I follow God's rules, God's going to bless me. Things are going to be good. Things will happen the way I would want them to happen. She said, I believed that's what God had promised. And so when that didn't happen, I concluded that God had lied to me. When God had not lied to them because... God had never promised that. In fact, often with some of God's most well-known servants, you could say his best servants, it has been the exact opposite. In fact, Paul's badge of being a genuine servant of Jesus is to, be, is to suffer and to be mistreated. Now, how do we respond when the circumstances are not at all what we want them to be. 
And, it's, and, and we know we're being mistreated, we're being falsely accused, we're being slandered and spoken of against in ways that just aren't fair, that aren't right. It's not just, and it's, it's hurting, it's costing. It's, it might be affecting me at work, it might, it might result in my dismissal from work, it might result in, in people that I wanted to befriend don't want anything to do with me. It might affect even the connection that I have and the relationships and even the opportunity to share Christ with somebody when these things are, what has God allow this? What's going on? Well, the passage just before us today, Acts chapter 16, verses 16 and forward, can demonstrate to us that sometimes it's not merely okay to be wronged. It's not merely bearable to be mistreated. Sometimes it's not merely right to be wronged. It is all right. It's exactly what should be. Because in that midst of being wronged, God is working exactly what he intends to work for good and for glory. So Acts chapter 16, verses 16 to 40 is actually a case when it's all right to be wronged. Now, as we read this section, I put in your notes, and I want to give you just a heads up of kind of where we're going, some things to watch for, even as we rehearse the story together. First of all, don't be afraid of snakes. You don't have to be afraid of snakes. Now, you say, where are the snakes? There are no snakes in this story. Oh, yes, there are. We'll get to them in a minute. Don't be afraid of snakes. Be willing to be intolerable. Now, some of you, that's good news. Some of you love to be intolerable. So this is your story. Be willing to be intolerable. Thirdly, Trust Jesus when you're wrong. That's really a centerpiece here. In the midst of being wrong, where will I put my eyes? Where will I put my focus? On self and circumstances or on the Lord himself? And finally, leave footsteps that others can follow. And that's really, I think, the main idea in this passage. There are footsteps being laid that others can see and others can follow. And this episode, I think, is one of the things that makes the Philippian church what it becomes. How rich and how deep and how spiritually vital this church is. Why the book of Philippians reads as it does as such a rich spiritual book for us. Because of where the church was. And I think this episode lays the groundwork for that. Acts chapter 16. Let's read it together. I'm going to read Acts chapter 16 beginning in verse 16. And if you're following along in the church Bible, in front of you there in the, in the, in the, in the benches, you'll find us on around, around about page 925, Acts chapter 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, "'These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation.' And this she kept doing for many days." Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. They dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. And they are disturbing our city. They're disrupting the social order. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or tolerate or to practice. The crowds joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely, securely. 
Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison, the dungeon, and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword. And he was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself. We're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You, in fact, your whole household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, They told him about Jesus. They told his whole household about Jesus. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. And they brought them up into the house and set food before him, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. We're done with them. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to, sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now. Go in peace. Isn't this good news? And Paul says, Not so fast. They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who were Roman citizens. They have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out in secret, in hiding? No. Let them come themselves and bring us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. They took them out, and they asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison, visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them, and then they departed. When it's all right to be wronged, the outcome demonstrates There's something bigger at play here. There's more than we saw at first. In fact, the the, uh, turning point of the story, the coming out of that Roman citizenship here, and the difference that that makes, that turns the story. And that, that particular feature is explaining why they did what they did and why it produces a certain outcome. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit of the story. First of all, I told you there were snakes. I said, don't be afraid of snakes. Here they are. They're they're going to and from the place of prayer. And this could have been right after, or right before, rather, they met Lydia and company. Or it might have been on another day when they were going to the same place again. We don't know. But as they were going to that place where God had used them, where God had worked, as they are going there, in the midst of God's blessing, we're met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. This is a spirit of python. I told you there were snakes. And the spirit of python, understand that in, in Greece, the, the best way that anybody believed they could find out what was going to happen in the future was to go to the city of Delphi up in the mountains above Athens and there at a particular temple you could receive an oracle and there was a priestess not a not a man but a woman who was possessed by a spirit and this spirit would speak through this 
priestess and, and would tell, give an oracle, a statement about something that was going to happen in the future. And so anytime somebody was going to go to war or attack or wanted to know some, some, some matter of economics or fortune, they would seek an oracle. Now, that was, in the pagan world, the definitive word. And that same kind of spirit, that spirit of Python, the snake, the serpent, is the, is the kind of spirit that was upon this young girl and would pretend through her to also predict the future, would give oracles. And so these owners, everybody wants to know what's going to happen in the future. What should I buy? What should I sell? What's the economy going to do? Is my team going to win? We want to know what's going to happen, and we're going to lay our bets accordingly. If only we could know the future, right, rather than trusting that to God. And so they have a veritable gold mine in this girl, if they can keep it. And how these two guys come along, and she's just saying who they really are. I mean, what's wrong with what she's saying, other than that she's, she's first of all, a distraction, puts up with it for many days, and yet also there's something generalizing about what she says. We hear that, and to a Jewish audience, or a or, or, or a biblical audience, a Bible-knowing audience, to hear that they're servants of the Most High God, that sounds like a positive ringing endorsement. They are serving the God of Daniel, the Most High God who rules in the kingdoms of men. But the Most High God in Greek circles in the first century referred to Zeus, who was the highest God, the father God in the Greek pantheon of gods. Among all the Greek gods, Zeus was the highest one. Zeus was on top of the others. And so this could sound like it was referring to him. And even to talk about a way of salvation wasn't anything particular special. The emperor himself claimed to be a god who was the savior of the people. Many of the gods offered salvation to people in all kinds of ways, rescuing them out of one distress or another. And so it sounds like they're just, they're servants of Zeus who are proclaiming a way of deliverance. Oh, good news. But in a sense, distracting from and overgeneralizing their message. Their message is an endorsement, doesn't fit in with the Greek understanding of many, many gods. Their message is uniquely different that there is only one God who sent his son into humanity to take upon himself humanity and to die for humanity that we might be saved. And that's the only way of salvation. So it's not so much what she does say, it's rather what she doesn't say and what she does not make clear and thus adds confusion in a Greek audience into the mix. And so this, this, this girl with the spirit of Python, and after several days of this happening, several days of traveling around and she's following them and she's saying these things, and, and um, finally Paul is troubled, annoyed, burdened, all translations of that word, that is, he, is he concerned for her, how she's being misused? But, but finally, he, he, in the name of Jesus, calls this spirit, this serpent spirit, out of this girl. And she's freed. She's delivered. Now imagine what that seemed like to the culture of the time, especially her owners. 
In their view, in Paul and Silas's view, they have, uh, Christians today, we read the story and we say, oh, what a wonderful thing. This is beautiful. She has been oppressed by a demonic spirit and she's been being used by these men for their profit because of the spiritual bondage that she's under and she's been set free. She's been delivered from a demonic spirit and now she's free to, to know and to worship God that she, she never could before. Praise God, look what has happened. To her owners, she used to have a unique and valuable ability that nobody else could do. And it made her unique, it made her special, it made her valuable. And now that unique ability has been taken away from her and from us. And it's kind of like, imagine somebody has a wonderful singing voice and they're on a who, America's Got Talent or whatever the latest... Um, American Idol or whatever new show is coming out and, and they go all the way to the top and stardom is before them and all of a sudden they meet somebody, they, they're, they're, they're having, kind of, the throat just feels kind of funny, scratchy. And so somebody comes along and, and this Christian says, hey, let me pray for you. And they pray for her and then she feels better but she can't sing anymore for some inexplicable reason. You've taken away her gift. You've taken away her ability. You've taken away what made her special and you've made her nobody. You've made her useless. That's their view of what has happened here. So you can see why they would be alarmed. Their means of using her for their own enrichment have been taken away. Now there are other analogies that you could bring into that, into our modern day as well, but the first point I want to make about snakes is the reality of it. There is spiritual things going on around us. It, 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 it manifests in all kinds of different ways, and I don't want to get into that, but one of the things I want to point out is in the name of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, a Christian, has the right to pray for somebody in the name of Christ. You have that authority, not in yourself, but in him. You have as much authority as I do to pray for somebody who seems to be troubled by spirits. Maybe it's, it's, it's horrible dreams or terrors in the night that they're experiencing. Maybe it's voices in their head that, that a lot of demonic oppression actually manifests very similar to schizophrenia, and it's almost hard to tell the difference. But whatever the case, whether somebody has, has a medical issue or a spiritism issue, we have the right and the authority in Christ to pray for them in his name. Don't be afraid of demonic activity or spiritual things. We are in Christ. Whom shall I fear? Now, Another reason to fear is what are other people going to think? That's really what gets it for most of us, right? And what other people think comes out very, very quickly. I said be willing to be intolerable because that's what they're called. This can't be tolerated. This is unacceptable. We cannot have this that they are promoting in our city. No way, no how. Okay. What do I mean? Verse 19 and following. The owners of the girl raise... raise um, a series of objections here. They, they marginalize them on ethnic grounds or, or in what they believe. First of all, they're marginalized. They're not like us, these Jews. This is, a, this is a city of Roman citizens. This is a city of retired and pensioned Roman soldiers who are kind of the core of the city. 
Other freedmen who have their citizenship are also make up. But, the, but this is a, a privileged city made up of people who have Roman citizen status. And these, who are these guys? Who are these Jews coming among us to stir things up? They're marginalized. They're not like us. Little did they know, Paul and Silas are Roman citizens. But sh- don't tell them yet. We're going to bring that out later. So they're marginalized, first of all. They appeal to social order and cultural norms. They're disturbing our city. They're causing, uh, they don't say, hey, these guys have cost us money. These guys did something spiritually that we can't explain, and it's going to cost us money. That's not what they say. No, they say, these guys are saying things and doing things that are disturbing our city. These guys are offending others. These guys are acting in ways that offend us good Romans. These guys are, they bring up a legal exception. What they're doing, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's so narrow. It's so intolerable. It's, it's discriminatory. It, it, it would cause us to neglect things that we should be doing and to no longer approve things that we should approve that our emperor wants us to approve like worshiping him as God, that what they're telling us to do is not legal. It's against the law for them to say that we should embrace and do the things that they're telling us to do. This whole Jesus-only thing is intolerable, and it's probably not legal. And they stir up the public against them. There's this uproar, and they're brought before the magistrates. And here I could actually show you some pictures. I said I wanted to show the pictures, and I skipped by them again. Let's go back. This is, the, this is kind of the city plaza, the main plaza. That's where people would mingle and mix, and right next to it, right on this other side of it, the other the, um, would be your left side of those pillars, I think is the marketplace. We'll go to that one. There's the Christian. Now, this doesn't look like much of a marketplace, but don't think of this as like the first century version of a strip mall with a whole line of little shops, which was right along the main commercial road, by the way, right along Broadway or Main Street, okay? But think of this as boutique shops in the best of locations right around a central plaza. If you could have your choice of where to stick your business it'd be right there. Now, there was much more to the commercial agora in that first century, but this is some of what's left still today. Okay, next picture. Forgot what it was. Oh, yes, this, this is actually where the magistrates sit. Now, there's a kind of some broken down rocks there in the middle. That's because the actual, the actual platform that they sat up on has kind of been fallen down and stones been taken away to build other things over the centuries. But there's enough of it left, and you can easily identify it because there's a large fountain on either side. And so those that described Philippi in the first century, they described the central plaza or forum, they described the fountains, and they described that platform in the middle. That's where the magistrates would have sat. That's where Paul and Silas would have stood before them. I actually have another picture of, of Brad and Bob standing before that magistrate's seat there, but I don't want to claim to be Paul or Silas here. So we'll move on. This is what they suggest was the prison, the cell in which Paul and Barnabas, or Paul and Silas, sorry, spent the night. Other archaeologists say, nah, it was just a cistern to hold water. We don't really know. It's kind of hard to tell these days because sometimes they would use a cistern as an inner prison. Jeremiah spent time in one. So it's kind of hard to sell, but those are some of the sights and scenes from that night or in that area around Philippi. 
So they bring these charges. The public is in an uproar. What are the magistrates going to do? They respond very quickly. They don't ask questions. They don't interrogate. They don't evaluate. They respond. They respond to the, to the shouts of the masses, and they order them to be beaten with rods. And then cast them into the prison, keep them as securely as possible, which means throw them into the inner prison or the dungeon, lock their feet in the stocks so they're, they're not going to be able to turn and roll and move all night long. They're going to have to sit there. That's the response. It reminds us of something else, and some of you said it earlier. It reminds us of another episode a few years earlier than this, and that was Jesus before Pilate, where he's also falsely accused. There's precedence here. We've seen this before. He's falsely accused, and the mob is stirred up against him, and the, the, the judge acts unjustly. He, he serves an agenda instead. What's going to be politically best to do in this situation rather than doing what is right and honoring truth? In fact, he scorns truth. Pilate says, what is truth? And so, what happened of Jesus happens to those who represent Jesus. What do we learn out of that? Well, first of all, it still does happen. That as it happened to Christ, so it happens to those who follow him. In fact, Paul says, this is the badge of a servant of Christ who also will suffer for his name even as Jesus himself suffered and how we should respond to that. The serpent still opposes Jesus. You're going to run into opposition. People are going to malign you. People are going to mistreat you. People are going to slander you. People are going to abuse you or accuse you. If you stand for the name of Christ, Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, this is the way it is. He says, Timothy, I don't know if this is quite in the text, but he says, Timothy, buck up, buttercup, because those who live godly in Christ Jesus are going to suffer persecution. That is going to happen along the way. It's normative in the Christian experience, unless something is not right in the Christian experience. Now, seasons occur where more than other, he also tells Timothy, be ready to proclaim the truth in season and out of season. So some seasons, some times for the church are different than others. But regardless, if it occurs and as it occurs and when it occurs, don't respond the same way. They will falsely accuse. They will malign. They will stir up protest against you. They will rely on the political powers whom they're aligned with. We don't respond in the, in the same way. Our confidence is not in present political authorities. As Peter says of Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was slandered, he didn't slander back. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but... Here's the key. He continued entrusting himself to God who judges justly. Do you believe that God is in control? That causes the problem for us, right? We believe God is in control, and so if God is good and God is in control, then why could this be happening to me? There's a breakdown somewhere, and it's only a breakdown because of our assumption of what ought to be that a God who's in control should do what's putting me more in control rather than God in control. Uh, rather, I need to realign my sight on what happened when God was in control concerning his own son. And if I look at only part of the story, if I look at only his life to the cross, that is a tragedy as well. And yet it didn't end there. 
It had to go there, but it didn't end there. It ended in his resurrection and his ascension and his sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God to make intercession with us and to make the way for any who believe in him to come home to Father's house. It had to go to the cross. That had to happen as horrible as it was because God was in control. It didn't end there. See, because God is sovereign, that adds a whole new meaning and impact into the troubles and sufferings that are, part, that are a part of this broken mortality in this fallen world. That it isn't meaningless any longer. Not for a Christian who suffers for the name of Christ. Trusting, entrusting himself to God who judges rightly. Imagine how countercultural the claims of Jesus really are. Imagine how far apart our perspectives are concerning even what happened to that girl. To the Christian, she's been delivered, right? To, to, to the people of the day, she's had a unique gift taken away. Imagine, let's talk about Pastor Ryan, youth ministry. There's, there's a new girl in the youth group. Her parents call up Ryan. They want to talk. Say, you know, our daughter, she used to be devoted to her studies. Almost every free amount of time that she had, she, she was devoted to her studies and extracurricular activities. She was building her college resume. You know how important that is, right? And then you brought along all this Jesus stuff. And now she wants to waste time going to church in the youth group. In fact, we've caught her reading her Bible when she could have been studying more. Now, I might be meddling a little bit. I might be sounding something like Christian parents as well. But, but you understand their perspective. If they know nothing about this whole Jesus thing in eternity, they think this is life is all she's got. Whatever she can make for herself here, that's all that matters. But it's not. There is all of eternity at stake. And learning, actually, growing up, growing as a follower of Jesus is learning what it is to lay down what I could do and what I could have for the sake of others and their eternal benefit. Paul takes it to the extreme when he says, I would even choose to be accursed if that would mean their salvation instead. Paul would lay it all down for the sake of others and that. That is, the, that is the badge of a servant of, of Jesus because that looks like Jesus. And that's what's going on here. You know, Paul tells us to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. We're waiting for people to ask then, aren't we? When do you suppose they ask? Well, when things are really good. When God is obviously so blessing me that, I mean, everything is going right. It's all coming up rose and somebody else wants to know, well, how is it that things are going so good for you? Oh, it's because of Jesus. That's how we want it to be. That isn't how it is. Normally, in the midst of the worst of stuff, when life and my world is falling apart and nothing is right, and some who know that this is wrong, you haven't been treated squarely here, and yet you're not fighting back. You're not going after them in like, in like manner. Why is that? That's when Peter says, 
be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. That's 1 Peter 3.15. And verse 14 talks about suffering for his name. Verse 16 immediately after talks about when they slander you because of what you're doing that's right. So in the midst of suffering and slander, that's when you might get asked to give some explanation for how is it that you can still hope in God? For he will yet save me. So then, be ready to give an answer of hope even when things look as bad as they do. In fact, that's what happens here. In the worst of situations, they are declaring their hope. There they are in the midst of the prison, in the midst of the dungeon. They can't sleep, so they might as well count sheep. No, they're not having anything to do with sheep. They're praying and they're singing. And the other prisoners are kept up by the singing. I don't know if it's on key or off. Or maybe it's because they can't figure this out either. How can these guys in those situation be praying and singing? Why don't they give it all up? And they don't. And they declare it all the more. And the other prisoners are listening in on this. And then the earth shakes. And, and the doors fly open. And the chains fall off. And nobody escapes. Earthquake, jailbreak, and nobody escapes. The other prisoners, you think, would at least run out. Paul and Silas don't say, hey, great, this is like Peter in Jerusalem, time for us to go. No, they stay right there. And the others stay there. Maybe it's because, man, this has been the most surreal night we've ever spent in jail, and we're going to wait and see what happens next. But they all stay. And the, and the guard comes rushing in, and he's sure they've all left because that's what anybody in their right mind in jail would do. And so... He rushes, and he's ready to fall on his own sword because he's quite sure he's going to be executed, executed from daybreak for losing these prisoners that he was told to guard securely. And Paul cries out, don't hurt yourself, we're all here. What? You're there? Why in the world would you be there? And he gets a light, he rushes in. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Somehow, did you catch the light part in the story? He asks for light, and he goes in. The light has come on here. And he sees enough to realize that he's lost, he's helpless, and these who he thought were his prisoners, they're the ones who know. They're the ones who are, on, who are with the God of gods. Who is he called? The Most High God? Is that what she was saying? And this God that they have been praying to and singing about, he's the one. He says, what must I do to be like you, saved? Paul says, oh, you want to do something, don't you? Everybody wants to do something. If only there was something that I could do that would merit God's approval. If only, if I knew what God's list was, if I knew what he, what he asks, if I knew what God requires, I could do those things, I could fill those squares, and I too would be good with God. You want to know what to do? There is something you can do. He gives them an answer. This is it. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You trust God for what Jesus did for you, and you will be saved. Jesus said, the one who believes in me will never die. Never. Well, the body may fall apart, but the one who believes in me will never die. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Most important question in all the Bible, what must I do to be saved? The answer 
Here we meet the man from Macedonia, the man who desperately needed their help. As I told the kids, he probably is not who they were expecting, and yet they were ready for that unexpected moment when God opened the doors, when God turns on the light and he sees it and he asks them for their hope, and they're ready with it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So then verse 35 after he, he receives them, they, his, his whole household as well hears the gospel. His whole household believes. In fact, in verses 31 to 34, four verses, four times his household or his family is mentioned. It's not unlike Lydia earlier. She believes and her household believes with her. And they're all saved. It's not just one isolated person here or there. They have impact on others around them also. An, an, also a normal in the story as it proceeds. So as the story goes on, the magistrate sent the word, hey, let those guys go, we're done with them. No, no, Paul says, you're not done with us yet, not yet. And he says, by the way, did you know that we're Roman citizens? You have mistreated, you have, you have punished us and brutalized us without a trial, without a conviction, and yet we are Roman citizens? Do you know what can happen to you as judges to have done that with a Roman citizen? And yes, they knew. And now they come hat in hand. Now they come on, gee, shucks, you know, we're sorry, we didn't know, we really, if we'd known, we wouldn't have, uh, we didn't even bother to ask, you know, we didn't really care in the moment, but gee, we're really sorry now. And Paul's got them on a hook. And what does he do with them there? He just lets it become public knowledge. He lets this out into the, you come and bring us out publicly, acknowledging that we have been wronged by you. What does that do? And then, no, we're not just going to hit the road right out of town. In fact, the Via Ignatia right out of town is just below where that cell is that I showed you. No, we're not just heading quickly out of town. We're going to go see Lydia. We're going to go see the other believers. We're going to make ourselves known to them. And you can follow us if you like, so you know who they are too. So you know who not to so quickly mistreat next time. You see, Paul has something over these magistrates now. They have wronged him and he bore it so that they would be much slower to act as harshly, as unjustly to others simply because they're Christians. What Paul and Silas have done is they have looked like Jesus. They bore in their own bodies suffering for the sake of of others' benefit, those Christians whom they would leave behind in Philippi after they left. They have left footsteps that not only did they explain the gospel, but they showed it in their own bodies. They laid down a pattern that others could follow. And when Paul gets into that, that Philippians epistle where he writes about our fellowship in the gospel, our fe your fellowship with me in this imprisonment, they've shared imprisonment with him before. And when he talks about that Jesus emptying himself, humbling himself, and God exalting him, they saw that lived out. Where Paul and Silas were unjustly humbled and mistreated and beaten and then lifted back up out of that cell recognized for who they really were, and they were vindicated. He's, Paul and Silas have demonstrated the gospel. This is what Jesus did. Jesus bore our guilt in his own body. It says, by his stripes, the marks on his back, the beating that he bore, by his stripes we are healed. And they took a beating 
for others. A pattern that the church could follow. Be willing to suffer for the sake and the benefit of others. Be willing to suffer, church, for the sake and the benefit of others. Be willing to give up what you could have, rights you could claim for the sake of others. We practice that every Sunday. You step into that every Sunday. Whenever you give an offering in this church, whenever you send support for a missionary, you are denying yourself of something you could have for the sake of others. Eternal benefit. Leaving footsteps for others can follow is one more piece. I've alluded to it a few times that I don't want to leave off before we go, and that is the family footsteps. Household is mentioned. Family is mentioned four times with the jailer's family in those four verses. It was mentioned with Lydia earlier. In each salvation experience, the family is involved too. And one of the things I was reminded of at Men's Roundup is how we need to, in family, not just in church family, but in our own families. How do we have family worship time together in ways that grow faith within our own family? A lot of young parents who are trying to figure out how could we do this. One model that was given to me at Roundup in one of the workshops I went to was a simple model of just include these three things. Include reading, praying, and Singing together, especially with young kids, they love to sing. We taught our kids scores of verses by listening to the same kids' songs over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And it was wonderful. Now, as grown-ups with them, we can still start singing one of those same songs and they still know it and we will teach it to their kids. Something about singing is good. Certainly just reading, telling, going through the story together, a, short, a fairly short bit. This doesn't have to take a long time. Maybe, maybe just right after dinner every night when the family's gathered around and do that. Get around a dinner table for dinner. And, and have, have a Bible nearby and just at the end of dinner now, before we all scatter, before everybody picks up their phones, take and, take and just read that next section together. And kids that are old enough know that they're going to have to, before they can escape, they're going to have to ask a question. It needs to be a legitimate question. Not what color was Paul's shirt, but what a real question. And, and so you have some kind of discussion around this passage. It doesn't have to be deep. It doesn't have to be theological so theologically astute, it just has to be, let's remind ourselves of who God is from his word. And then let's just pray. Maybe the passage just provokes something to pray about that story. God, give us courage to, to be willing to suffer for somebody else's benefit. It might be a simple prayer as that, but the power of praying out loud. And, and men, can I say this? The power of a father in a family praying for God's blessing on his children cannot be overestimated. The spiritual impact that it has. Some of you are long, long ago parents, and now your grandparents are better. Do the same things. We are already infiltrating our grandchildren's lives with Bible story books. Okay? We're already starting there. Whether the parents like it or not, don't care. Our grandkids too. Now we're going to do that carefully and cautiously, or, or, or you should as grandparents, if maybe, maybe the parents aren't so sure about this whole thing that mom and dad are putting on their kids. But don't be afraid to, to pray with them, to pray for them, to, to um, tell them stories, 
read them stories, and bring the truth of God back into family worship together. Let's pray. Father, we want to. We want to see you work in our lives like you worked in Paul and Silas. We want to see, Lord, your blessing evidence, even if it's through pain and trouble. Father, we would confess before you that we do fear. We fear what others will think. We fear what others will do. We fear what it will cost us. Father, we even fear stirring up spiritual opposition against ourselves. Who are we that we could stand against that? We are your children. And you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are the God of all. And you even have your angels as ministering spirits. You are able to protect us. And you are able to walk with us even through the worst of times, knowing that you in Jesus have already been through worse than that. So, Father, would you give us the courage, rather than fearing, the courage to trust you in the middle of whatever. The, the courage to, to lay down whatever we might even want to claim for ourselves. And to yield that. Father, do that even in this offering whether it's in a commitment on that communication card or whether it's in the, in the offering that we freely give out of our hearts to you that is something we might have used for ourselves instead. Father, take what we would yield to you and use it for your glory and for the eternal good of others. Give us the courage to trust you with that in whatever comes. In Jesus' name, amen.